0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1 here in just a moment. Mark, chapter 5, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, just slip up your hand. We've got extras in the back. we would be glad to bring you a hard copy of God's Word for you to look off of. Just slip up your hand, and one of our church members will bring it to you. Last week, or rather, let me begin by this. Um, The passage this week is another encounter uh, between Jesus and the spiritual forces of this world. Um, And I just want to begin the sermon by just recognizing a reality that the Bible assumes. Uh, The Bible assumes uh, that we are physical beings, uh, but that there is a spiritual world that is ongoing all around us all the time. Uh, That there is a spiritual war, that there is more happening ...than what you can see, touch, and feel. That there are such a thing as demons. There is such a thing as evil spirits at work in the world. And, and, and on the beginning of the sermon, I would just like to acknowledge that we as modern 21st century Americans are uncomfortable with this idea... Uh, because Satan has done such a very good job of hiding himself behind uh, secularism and the explanation of all things via uh, scientific observation. Uh, So Satan sort of hides behind uh, our Western wisdom, and he works in the shadows uh, as we go on uh, about our lives being deceived by him. 2 Corinthians talks about how he blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. Now, if you travel overseas you go to a, a different context, uh, Satan wreaks havoc upon the people uh, by l- keeping them in fear, uh, by, by manifesting himself in miraculous ways and keeping the people clinging to their false gods. You see, Satan is not really concerned about whether you're uh, a secular atheist or whether you are... Um, A Buddhist or a Hindu uh, worshiping uh, 330 million gods. He's interested in keeping you from the one true God. And so when you turn to the New Testament and you see Jesus walking around, it seems like everywhere he goes, uh, the curtain is being pulled back on a spiritual reality that is actually happening all the time. But when Jesus shows up, uh, the demons who are working around and behind the scenes just make themselves very evident and very plain. So the text that we turn to this morning is one of those moments where um, we see the spiritual warfare on display, but though it feels very distant to us, I want us to acknowledge on the front end that it's happening among us even now. I felt in the last service, a spiritual war for the attention of the people to hear the truth and either accept it or deny it. And here we turn this morning to Mark chapter 5, and what we see is a clash Between Jesus, the son of the most high God, and what is one of the most powerful displays of demonic activity in the New Testament. And Jesus has arranged the divine appointment to occur here in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. He has intentionally moved toward this moment, this sort of crescendo moment that we're reading in Mark chapter 5. If you remember last week, in Mark chapter 4, at the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus urges his disciples to get into the boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. They're moving from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he does it sort of abruptly. In fact, in Mark chapter 4 verse uh, 35, sorry, verse 36, uh, Jesus has just urged them to go across the other side. In verse 36, it says that Jesus, them leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. So Jesus is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He's just taught all day long. Evening comes. You think it's time to go rest, and Jesus says, all right, let's get in the boat. We're going, we're going on a night travel. We're going on a, a night excursion across the Sea of Galilee. No time to go pack. No time to go prepare. Uh, we, we've got something we've got to do, and as they cross the sea, uh, Remember, last week, they're thrown into what was one of the worst storms that these experienced fishermen had ever experienced. Water's filling the boat. The fishermen are, are to the point where they're giving up rowing, and they're just saying, we're going to perish. They're, they're crying out, Jesus, why don't you care that we're perishing? And along the way, Jesus uh, uh, stands, and he declares with authority, be calm or be still. And the water's calm. Jesus uses the moment to teach about what it means to have faith through the storm. But they still continue to their destination. Now, their destination is a a region called the Gerasenes, uh, a region that was a part of a place called the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. Where they were headed was uh, Gentile country. Where they were headed was a region Known for being predominantly influenced by Rome and by Hellenization. It means a predominantly idol worshiping country where, where pagan people worshipped false gods and performed mystical rituals. It was a place that was dominated by demonic forces. A place where, where demonic forces were keeping people in fear and keeping people going back again and again and again to a God that doesn't exist and who cannot save. And so they they head this way to the east, away from the God-fearing people of the Jews, and to these sort of pluralistic pagan people who are influenced by the demonic. And things get interesting immediately upon their arrival. And so we're going we're gonna to begin reading here in verse 1, and we're going to read this whole big old story and pause and pray for God to understanding, and then we're going to work through it piece by piece. So beginning in verse 1, The text says this, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So a demon, the the Jews would have called the demon an unclean spirit. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and they told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had a legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Father, we pray, guide our time in this text. Help me to say what you would have me say to expose the truth that this text was placed in this book 2,000 years ago to reveal, Father. We pray, help us to gaze upon Jesus in a deeper way this morning, and help us to respond rightfully in worship. We pray all of this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When the disciples land um, there in the region of the Decapolis, they have this question pressing on their mind. you look at the very last verse of Mark chapter 4, They've just seen this amazing thing that God has done over the physical world, the physical reality around them that is hostile against them. They've just seen Jesus literally control the weather patterns. They've seen Jesus do what the Bible indicates that only the God of the universe can do. So this is the question pressing on their minds in verse 41. They're filled with great Fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're asking the question that the whole Gospel of Mark has been given to us to answer Who is this Jesus? Who is this one who stands up and speaks and wind and rain just stops? Who could do this? And so, with this question, Pressing on their mind, they arrive into the Gentile territory. And immediately upon their arrival, there comes someone unexpected who knows exactly who Jesus is. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And apparently this man with the unclean spirit is crying out and screaming the identity of Jesus, the son of the most high God. Now, first, let me let me comment on the timing of this. Mark is intentional to say that that Jesus, as he steps out of the boat, I mean, they hit the shore, they hit the land. He steps out of the boat and immediately this demon possessed man comes running out from the graveyard, graveyard, approaching Jesus and it's not just, I mean, demon-possessed man, just throw in that adjective or that phrase alone, and, and already you should be freaked out, right? Not a thing you see all the time. But this is not just a demon-possessed man. This is a famously demon-possessed man. <laughs> this, is a, this is a guy who's known across the ten Gentile cities. He's known across the Decapolis here. Uh, this guy is is not just... A demon-possessed man, look at how he's described, beginning in verse 3. He lived among the tombs. No one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Apparently there had been so much conflict surrounding this man that the community had tried to detain him on several occasions. They've tried chains, they've tried shackles, they've tried to by their own strength to subdue this man. The Greek word for subdue there is used uh, most often when you're talking about taming wild animals. So, so the, the, the text is portraying for you a picture of this man to be wild, uncontrollable, unconsolable. You don't know what he's going to do next. And if you get around anyone like that, whether it be uh, demon possession or whether it be drugs or alcohol, the unpredictability of someone who is dangerous like that even ju- it intensifies the fear level. He's unsubduable. The man approaching Jesus was deemed dangerous by even his own pagan society that likely led him (laughs) to the point of demon possession that he's now suffering with. The rituals and practices and worshiping of the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the, the false gods is what led, likely led this man down this journey. And now his fellow pagans are saying, this dude has gotten out of hand and he's uncontrollable and he is now uh, doomed or outcasted outside of society. The text teaches that, that this man is so tormented by the demons, he's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's dangerous to himself and to everyone who's around him, but, but he's more than just dangerous. I mean, in the first century, especially for Jesus's Jewish followers, this man was detestable. He was to be avoided at all cost. This man is coming out of the graveyard because apparently he's living among the tombs. Now remember, when you think about tomb, don't think, um, you know, Jefferson Memorial down there. Don't don't think the way you think about graveyards. Think more about how Jesus was buried in a tomb. More like a hole sort of cut out into rock, which more like a cave with a rock rolled over the front of it. When it says this man's dwelling among the tombs, it's highly likely that this man is finding shelter in the tombs with the dead bodies so he's he's sleeping amongst the carcasses which to us already again freaky creepy strange like like our, our you know gives us the the ebgbs but to the jewish person for them it was it was old testament law that to touch a dead body deemed you ceremonially unclean for 7 days now you could talk about how part of this is for cleanliness and and there's reason for the practicality of the laws in the Old Testament. But to come in contact with a dead body, you then had to be separate from the whole community, outcasted from the community for seven whole days before you could come back in and worship the God of the universe and be back with the community of the people. This guy didn't just touch a dead body. This dude's living amongst them. And the Jews had expanded that law to include not just touching a dead body, but touching anything that a dead body had touched. So, you touched the cot or the bed that the dead body was on, you're unclean for seven days. When you look at this man and you look at Jewish law and tradition, you realize that he was ceremonially unclean on multiple levels. I mean, he checked multiple boxes for why you should not even get close to this man or touch this man. He's unclean because of contact with dead bodies. He's unclean because he's a Gentile person who the Jews had disdain for. He's unclean because he has a demon, pretty big one there, unclean spirit. And we find out later in the story that he's living in a particular region where all the locals are making their money by raising pigs by the thousands. Now, you and me, that may not be that big of a deal. We like bacon. We're like, yeah, cool, praise the Lord. But in Old Testament law, one of the foods deemed unclean that a Jew could not eat was pig. It kept them separate from the pagans. But again, they took it so far to say, don't even touch a pig. Don't even be near a pig. Don't even touch a thing the pig has, has touched. And so here's the dude with dead bodies. He's a Gentile, has an unclean spirit, and he's living amongst thousands of pigs. <laughs> I mean, he, he checks four boxes here. For uncleanliness, so as not to even approach this man, touch this man, or get near this man. Everything about the man made him an outcast. Everything about the man made him utterly detestable to Jewish society. So imagine the reaction of the disciples as this man comes running. What a sight it must have been to have a bloody, deranged, crying out, violent man coming running out of the graveyard toward Jesus and his followers. And here's Jesus' followers. They're soaking wet. They're exhausted. They just had a near-death experience because Jesus thought that a night sail was a good idea. They, they hit the land. They're probably ready to fall onto the land and kiss it because they're just thankful to be off the boat. And the very first thing <laughs> that confronts them as they get off the boat is this screaming man coming and running at them. <laughs> and I don't know. I wish I could have a camera just to see the picture. I mean, I don't know if... The, like. Peter was pretending to be bold here. If he's like curled up in John's lap. I mean, if there's just fear happening amongst the disciples. But the whole scene is striking. But what, what strikes me the most about the scene, and, and, and I think the thing that just, I mean, there's lots of things you can talk about. It's a big text. But one of the things that, that really struck me as I meditated upon these verses this morning is how Mark indicates as soon as Jesus got off the boat. It seems when you look at the larger context and the way in which Jesus has led the disciples across the sea, they've gotten out here at this location, that this moment is not some random event that has now interrupted Jesus' plans for the east side of the Sea of Galilee ministry. It seems when you look at the larger context, this is the moment Jesus intended to get to. Jesus meets this man... And as we'll see in the story, heals this man. And then the people of the region kick him out of the region and he goes back across the sea. You begin to realize the whole point for the the travel to this particular location is this one man whom the rest of the world deems so detestable, so dangerous, that you should not even get near him lest you be declared unclean. The whole trip is about meeting this one man. This is the truth that stuck out to me the most this week. And this is the first one, if you want to write it, write it down. Truth number one. Jesus moves with mercy toward the dangerous and detestable. He moves toward this man. Jesus' mama would have told him not to go to this part of town. Right? In the name of wisdom and religious cleanliness, the Pharisees would have taught their disciples to avoid this part of town, to avoid this man altogether. But what we see Jesus doing consistently in the Gospel of Mark is not moving away from brokenness because it makes him feel uncomfortable, but toward the detestable, the dangerous, the unclean, the hopeless, the helpless people in the world. I mean, Jesus' example from Mark chapter 1 all the way to now is Jesus approaching the leper who had to yell in the streets, unclean, unclean, so as nobody actually touch him and be contaminated and declared unclean, you have Jesus reaching out in Mark chapter 1 and touching the leper. And Jesus doesn't become unclean, the leper becomes clean. You see, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus uh, extending an invitation to a tax collector. Follow me. Shortly after, accepting an invitation to a tax collector party. (laughs) Where Jesus goes and sits among the sinners and the rest of the people judge Jesus for his uh, company. And here's Jesus again in Mark chapter 5, leaving the crowd on the west side of the Sea of Galilee to meet one Gentile, demon-possessed man living among dead bodies and pigs so that he might show him mercy. And that Jesus, in this story, is the same Jesus yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I I I want you to feel encouraged this morning at Jesus' intentional steps toward this man, where he was at, If you're in this room and you feel too dirty, too sinful, too unclean for God to pursue relationship with you, learn from this man. Learn from this moment. Perhaps it's sexual sin you've engaged in. Perhaps it's something you've watched this week. Perhaps it's uh, drugs or alcohol or divorce or depression. Perhaps you yourselves are cutting yourself with rocks because of the self-hatred. Maybe it's abuse you've endured or abuse you've inflicted. Maybe it's failures with relationships or work or life or ministry, whatever the case may be. I want you to see Jesus in this moment, leaving the 99 and pursuing the one because the one is valuable to him. I want you to see Jesus crossing the sea to pursue a man who's been enslaved by evil. And I want you to know that this man's story, this narrative, is a physical, historical representation of what Jesus does when he pursues relationship with you. Right? I mean, that, This man dwelling amongst the dead can feel so foreign from us. But Paul looks at you, and this is what he says about you in Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You weren't just dwelling among the dead. You were the unclean thing. (laughs) You were the dead thing. You walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 should stand as a testimony to us that there's literally no one beyond the reach of God's mercy. There's no level of uncleanness that Christ is afraid to get close to. And it should also be really challenging to us. For any of us who believe that following Jesus is about staying safe and clean and distance from anyone who is not like us or who who could hurt us. Jesus pursues the dangerous and the detestable. And so should we. And we do so with the promise that Jesus will be with us to the ends of the age. The same Jesus who does what he's about to do in verse six. Look at verse six. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, "What have we to do? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me." He was saying to him, "Come out of the man, you unclean spirit." And Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now I want you to notice uh, the, two, the, the differences in demeanor between Jesus and the demons in this encounter. Jesus is calm and collected. Jesus looks at the man, and I think Jesus is talking to the man. I couldn't prove this 100%. You know, when he he asks the question whether he's speaking to the demons or the man, I think he's speaking to the man here. When Jesus sort of cuts through all the chaos and just says, What is your name? Now remember, the man has a name. We must not forget that there's a shell of a real man here that has been ransacked by demonic forces. There's a soul here. There's a person who at some point in the past was a kid. There's a person that at some point in the past had an identity apart from being possessed by thousands of demons. But something happens along the way to this real person we can forget the personhood of people when we see someone oppressed by evil. When we see the, the manifestation of the demonic presence that is attacking them and in them, we could forget that there's a valuable personhood who is being influenced by these things. We don't know this man's story, if there was trauma or suffering or addiction, or if the worship of pagan idols simply opened the door to this kind of demonic oppression and possession. But Jesus looks at this man and he asks for a name. And let, this be, let that be a reminder to you that when you see a homeless man or a drug addict or someone that you deem as a criminal, that there's a, there's a person wrapped in all of that exterior suffering and sin and evil. There's, there's a person made in the image of God there who has a name and an identity that God created. But yet the spiritual forces of this world and the sin within them is now destroying and causing them to destroy themselves. Like this man crying out and using rocks to hurt himself. There's people here in St. Rose that are destroying themselves. And who I'm afraid many in this room would be tempted to stay away from because they seem too dangerous or detestable. So Jesus looks at this man and asks for his name. But it's not the man who answers, it's the demon who answers. And they speak with a collective voice, and they say, My name is Legion, because we are many. Now, they choose that name on purpose. The word Legion was a, a technical term for a Roman, uh, a Roman battle battalion of 5,600 soldiers. So so, the, legion, so the, the demons have chose this name because it's their intent to strike fear, Right? Their intent is to strike fear. This is the name that they have. We, we are legion. When, when, when a legion of Roman soldiers show up to a town in the ancient Near East, that's not good news for your town, right? So, so the name is supposed to indicate power. It's supposed to indicate numbers. I mean, this is, this is a big, powerful bunch of demons that have influenced and oppressed this man. But though they are used to striking fear in everyone, in this scenario, they are the ones who are scared. When we just look at the demeanor and you listen to the language, Jesus calmly says, what is your name? The demons, verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, what are you to do with me? (laughs) Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Verse 12, they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Anything is better than the end that we know is coming. There is an awareness. When you look throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's an awareness amongst the evil of this world that they're on the losing team. Never do you see, when Jesus is confronted with demonic powers, it's never a contest. The demons, I think we said this, you know, Months back when we saw the first encounter with demons, the demons never in the scenario start picking up stuff and throwing it at Jesus or like trying to wage war or fight like there's a chance that they might like have the upper hand in the scenario. It's always a trembling and a pleading, not yet, Jesus, don't torment us yet. There seems to be an awareness that there's coming a day where all evil forces in the universe will meet their end and it will be an end of eternal torment. And so here they are, not fully understanding when that's going to be, how it's going to happen, just pleading with Jesus, please don't send us there yet. Don't torment us. Send us to the pigs anywhere but the eternal destruction that we know you have planned for us. So they're pleading with Jesus. And in this moment, you just see the power of Jesus. And that's truth number two. Jesus overpowers the powerful. The picture of Jesus in this passage is that there is no power. I don't care how many thousands of demons are wrapped up in one man. They tremble at the voice of King Jesus. Back to back, these stories are supposed to give you a confidence in the power and authority in King Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's the physical world, if it's wind or rain or storm or waves or viruses. It doesn't matter if it's the spiritual world. If it's one demon or 5,600 demons, when Jesus speaks with authority, his word has the power to do whatever it is that Jesus wants done. There should be a, a humble confidence that we walk in as Christians, a certain peace we have in our Lord Savior, that He is totally able to do as He pleases in every situation, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our ministry to the lost, in our praying. We walk with King Jesus. So Jesus sends the legion of demons away, and when the dust settles, there stands a man whose life has been changed forever. All right, you look down at verse 15. I'm sorry, we'll do 14. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that happened. So a big commotion has happened, right? Because it's not just one man. you got 2,000 pigs (laughs) that have all of a sudden went wild and committed suicide. (laughs) I mean, you got, you got someone's livelihood. you got a, a whole economic thing that has just happened where pigs have just rushed to their doom suddenly. So, so you've got the testimony of the man, and then you have the external testimony of this wild uh, uh, moment of nature where these pigs go fleeing to their own death. So people have heard about it, and in verse 15 it says, They came to Jesus, and this is what they see. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one whom had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Could you just imagine having known this man, having been one of the ones that tried to bind him, had been one of the ones that had been afraid of him, and you walk up and you see him fully clothed, in his right mind, enjoying fellowship with Jesus, smiling, laughing, eating, total transformation, it's a beautiful picture of spiritual life being breathed into someone who was truly, absolutely, totally, spiritually dead. But not only does Jesus deliver this man, the text suggests that he has a plan for this man. Fast forward to verse 18, Jesus' is leaving the region, and we'll talk about why he's leaving the region in just a minute, but verse 18, he's getting in the boat, and the man who'd been possessed with a demon begged him that he might be with him. So here's here's the man who's experienced this massive deliverance by the mercy of Jesus, and he's pleading with Jesus, just let me go with you. (laughs) I mean, I'll do Anything. Like, I'll be the foot washer guy always. Like, I, like, like, I'll be the guy that paddles always. Like, Jesus, let me go with you. Let me be one of your followers and see you do this with other people. I mean, there, the, the text says there's a begging happening here. He's pleading, Jesus, let me follow you wherever you lead me. And Jesus, surprisingly, doesn't let him. He's got a different plan for this man. Verse 19, he did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Truth number three and our last truth for this morning is this. Jesus invites the people he saves to participate in his mission. The story doesn't stop with this one man. Even though the herdsmen are pushing Jesus out of the region, Jesus has now left this one man to carry the message of mercy to the ten Gentile cities that no Jew would ever want to go to. This man went from self-destructing among the dead to now being employed by Jesus to proclaim the word to bring people from spiritual death to life throughout ten cities. In the ancient world, Jesus came to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, yes, to meet with this one man. But even in meeting with this one man, Jesus intended to then reach people through this one man. He has a plan not just to deliver him from evil, but now to invite him to, to join the kingdom expanding project. And I love how Jesus is specific when he says, go home to your friends, Like, go home to the people that knew you before the whole demon thing, during the whole demon thing, and show them what God has done. You have relationships. Jesus says, you got people. Here's a starting place. Your friends. (laughs) Go to them and say, look. Look what Jesus has done by his mercy in my life, there's your starting point. That's what you are to do. King Jesus has spoken, and the man goes on, and 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 he, he apparently he does so joyfully, right? Verse twenty says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marvelled. Now, now this man could have very easily sat and pouted because he didn't get to be one of the twelve on the boat, right? That's cooler. That's cooler, but I want to be with you. I want to see them. There. I mean, Jesus, like, like, I want to go. But Jesus says, you've got friends in these cities that you need to go reach. And, and, and I think the command here that he gives to this man it is a command for all of us. Amen. Right? Go to your friends and declare what all that the Lord has done for you. I mean, I I think that that, that everyone in this room can declare what the mercy of the Lord has done for them if they are a Christian. Every person in this room is uniquely positioned with relationships and unique spheres of influence that no one else has in this church. You are uniquely suited to, to reach others with the good news of Jesus through your story and your relationships. May this be a model of what we all just do all the time. Look what the Lord has done for me. Now, I want to close um, with a warning from this text. So there are two types of responses to Jesus present in this text. There's the man set free from all the evil, who who joyfully does whatever Jesus says and runs to tell others. About the good news of mercy. But then there's a group of people who are onlookers to this miracle of Jesus who respond very differently. Look with me back at verse 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs, right? Important, and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus. To depart from their region. Now this is a strange detail. Why would the people of the region urge Jesus to leave after they've seen Jesus do a mighty miracle in an individual's lives? Well remember that when when the demons fled and entered the pigs and they sprinted to their own destruction, somebody was affected by that. The local economy was affected by that. If it's true, as some scholars say, that, that, uh, that it's possible that the, they were raising pigs to feed Roman armies as they moved to and fro between these cities, I mean, there's real impacts here for real people and their livelihoods. Jesus had disrupted the way of life in the region. He had cost them something very valuable, their livelihood. Rather than seeing Jesus as a deliverer worth following, they see him as a disruptor of their way of life. The text seems to suggest that the townspeople would have rather had Jesus leave the demon-possessed man to suffer among the graves than to put at jeopardy their physical and financial assets. The text seems to suggest they would rather see Jesus get out than see lives change. It's a sad moment in the story. And I'm afraid... It's a familiar moment. I mean, how many of us in our lives have identified more with the onlookers here than with the man who's been set free by mercy? How many of us are happy enough to see Jesus work miracles, to see Jesus bring good gifts, as long as it doesn't mess with our lives? As long as he doesn't cost me anything, as long as he doesn't make me uncomfortable, as long as he doesn't send me to do anything I don't want to do, as we move through Mark, we will see more and more that the Jesus of the Bible is a disruptor to our way of life. He cannot be casually associated with by people who want to prioritize their own way of life and keep Jesus as a sidekick that sort of keeps things going. May we not be a people who would rather have our 2,000 pigs than see a soul saved for eternity. How many of us choose the pigs so often rather than to be disrupted by the miracle work of Jesus? Jesus, let's recap here. Truth number one was Jesus moves with mercy toward the dangerous and the detestable. Truth number two, Jesus overpowers the powerful. Truth number three, Jesus invites the people he saves to participate in his mission. And, and lastly, we'll just close with three very quick takeaways. Number one uh, is simple. It's, it's come to Jesus. If you're in this room and you feel dirty and useless for whatever the reason, this story is is a testimony to the extent of the mercy of Christ. Do not flatter yourself in thinking that you are somehow worse off than this man, overwhelmed by a legion of demons living among tombs. This is here as a testimony to just how powerful the cross was going to be. That the blood of Jesus sacrificed on your behalf was going to cover every ounce of sin you've ever committed, are committing, and will commit. That the forgiveness and the mercy is truly more than your sins. Come to Jesus. Takeaway number two confront your idols. What would cause you to urge Jesus to leave the area? what do you cling to so much that if Jesus were to probe or prod or disrupt your plans that you would rather see Jesus get out than have that affected takeaway number 3 pursue people like Jesus pursued people pursue people like Jesus pursued people take intentional steps toward the individuals that are overlooked and neglected. Take intentional steps toward the least of these, the dangerous and the detestable, and watch the Lord of the universe work. Pursue people like Jesus pursued people. So let's, let's close our time together with a prayer, uh, thanking, for this, this, thanking God for this story And praying that we would respond appropriately. Let's pray together. Thank you for this narrative. Uh, Lord, that you have given us, that you've preserved for 2,000 years in the scriptures um, to help us to see a little bit of the heart of Christ. Father, we pray uh, that even now, that everyone in this room, that we would just take a time where we just come to you with all of our mess, uh, with all of our shortcomings, with all of our uh, spiritual just nastiness, our uncleanness, Father, would we come to you in confidence that that you are the Jesus who cleanses the unclean. And Father, may we rest in the good news of Jesus that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Father. Help us believe this morning how good the good news of your coming really is. Help us to rest in it. And Father, help us to be people who pursue others with that good news, with that rest. May we may we go to our friends, may we go to the people who are not like us, who are not our friends. May we may we pursue people like like you pursued us with this sort of crazy optimism that we serve a King Jesus who can, at the word of his mouth take away any addiction, take away any doubt, take away any any sin. Father, you, you are able. And so we pray that we would walk in a sort of confidence in our evangelism, discipleship in our lives, God. Help us to respond rightly now in humble submission to you and in joyful celebration. And we pray all of this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.